It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. The truth is that we are in a climate emergency. We have less than 10 years to make substantial changes to our society and way of life and our economy. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. Those who have never fought for the colours they fly should be careful about criticising those who have. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. In an extraordinary move, Conservative MPs are trying to prevent Owen Paterson, a former Environment and Northern Ireland Secretary, from being suspended from the House of Commons for breaking lobbying rules. A group of his supporters, led by former Commons leader Andrea Leadsom, want to overturn a ruling by the Commons Standards Committee and overhaul the committee itself. Now They're pushing for an amendment that would instead see a new committee set up to consider changes to the process for investigating MPs. Labour has accused the Tories of double standards. Not only is he complicit in this uh, double standards, but so are all of those Tories who are supporting this bid today. It's incredible that they think that they can do this without any repercussions. So that was Lisa Nandy, Labour MP, Shadow Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs there, giving the Labour side. Well, meanwhile, Chancellor Rishi Sunak will set out the UK's plans to become the world's first net zero aligned financial centre as he hosts Finance Day today at COP26. The Chancellor has announced that the UK will become the first country to force financial firms to publish their net zero carbon plans. Rishi Sunak also is speaking to Bloomberg this afternoon at 3 p.m. So you can catch that full interview on Bloomberg Radio and television. But I want to dive into what's going on uh, in Glasgow today. So both the British and the Scottish governments, it seems, are using the summit to try to show their leadership credentials in perhaps slightly different ways. Johnson, climate change, Nicola Sturgeon, for one, on independence. Scotland's first minister has faced criticism for branding Scotland a, quote, nation in waiting in adverts at the start of the climate summit. Well, joining us now to discuss this and what's going on more broadly at COP26, David Linden, who is SNP MP for Glasgow East. David, welcome to the programme. Thanks so much for being with us at a very busy time um, with what is going on in Scotland. So, a nation in waiting welcomes the nations of the world. That was the tagline in the adverts from the SNP that came in for so much criticism from uh, Scottish Conservatives and Liberal Democrats. How would you respond to saying that this isn't sort of the moment to be pushing the independence idea? Well, I think, firstly, thank you very much for, for having me on this afternoon, Caroline. It's, it's great to be with you. Mm. Um, I, I would say that, you know, it, it, it's not a huge surprise to us that, you know, for example, the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats will use any opportunity possible to try and minimise Scotland. But I, I would argue, actually, that, that Scotland is one of the, 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 the you know, the best places to have that, that COP focused on and delivery and action. 
And, and there's no doubt that, yes, you know, we in Scotland want to be an independent nation. We want to take our seat at the top table and we have bold ideas about, you know, how we can safeguard our planet, how we can protect our environment. And in many respects, you know, Scotland being an independent nation is is probably just the direction of travel. Um, but there's no doubt that as, as leaders meet in Glasgow, um, we'll use the opportunity to focus on what we can do to try and, and tackle the climate emergency, but also talk about the the much more ambitious role that Scotland wants to play as an independent nation, which is surely to come. The world is discussing the, the biggest issue facing the, the planet in, 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 in human history. The Scottish Conservatives say that the SNP is still uh, using this uh, using this conference to, to drive attempt to drive independence. I think one of the things we're also doing is talking about the, the real substantial progress that we've made as a Scottish government, to try and tackle climate change. So the, making sure that 96% of, of gross energy com- consumption comes from renewable sources, that commitment to making sure we've got free bus travel for under 22 is making sure that I think we're producing around 80% of all new woodland planting in the UK. So it is possible to have a view on the Constitution, but equally it's possible to talk about our bold action on climate change, and that's something that we are relishing the opportunity to do over the course of the next couple of weeks. Okay, the Scottish government's got legally binding targets in terms of cutting greenhouse gas emissions net zero by 2045, the UK as a whole by 2050, of course. But actually, both the UK and Scotland are missing the targets and much harder stuff needs to be done. How can you deliver? Well, I mean, Scotland's emissions are down by, I think, 51% since 1990. Um, we've got no doubt that we have much more to do. And I think one of the, the real focuses of the, the COP summit this week is to look at what more we can do to redouble our efforts to, to try and make sure that we tackle that, that climate and nature emergency. I've already outlined, Caroline, some of the you know the policies mm-hmm. that we are pursuing at the moment to try and get there. But there's no doubt that this, this week and, and indeed next week should be a really uncomfortable time for all governments to, to seriously consider some of the policy commitments they've made and what that looks like in the, the backdrop of COP26. Um, having said that, David, of course, I mean, there are question marks about the numbers, both for the UK and for Scotland, of course, because they exclude significant, um, you know, uh, certain significant outputs. I mean, it depends how you how you calculate it, that that number of, of 51 percent can perhaps look a little rosier than than some environmentalists paint it. Well, absolutely, there's no doubt. And I think it would be fair to say that, you know, I've spoken about figures from 1990, and I'm that I was born. Um, there's no doubt that the arguments on climate change and the fact that politicians are taking this much more seriously means that we've got to redouble our efforts and, and take some pretty difficult decisions. Um, certainly, even in my own time as a, a parliamentarian, I've seen the Scottish government and the UK government have to change policy in light of the climate emergency. And I think that's the responsible thing for a government to do. And you'll certainly see probably over the course of the next few weeks, you know, governments trying to grapple with some of the commitments that I hope will come out of COP26. And that will, I'm afraid, mean you know, difficult decisions being taken for governments. It means difficult decisions taken for us as individuals as well. I don't think it's enough for us all just to move to a bamboo toothbrush and take out extra recycling. I think we've all got to redouble our efforts and that's what the focus of COP26 is very much on. What's the Scottish Government's plans plan for moving away from uh, oil and gas exploration, particularly for uh, Aberdeen and the North East, which obviously is so dependent on that sector? 
you're absolutely right, Julian. I mean, we, we certainly saw a situation back in the 1980s where the industrialisation happened really, really quickly, and that meant that places in the west of Scotland ended up basically as an economic wasteland. So one of the things that I'm really glad to see the Scottish Government has committed to doing is that just transition, which recognises that absolutely correctly that there are places in the northeast of Scotland, not the Aberdeen, um, that are very reliant on, on, on some of that industry around fossil fuels, but we want to transition away from that. Um, that is a very difficult thing to do, but we're up for the challenge, and that's why we've got that Just Transition Fund, which I think is incredibly bold um, and will meet the challenges, both the climate emergency and making sure that we, we transition away in a, in a manner that doesn't leave communities behind, as we saw in the 1980s in the west of Scotland. COVID um, is also a concern, I mean, both generally across the UK, but also specifically because of COP26. There is a worry about, you know, all of these hundreds, thousands of delegates in Glasgow uh, pushing up case counts. There is, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, clearly there there is a a risk associated with large gatherings. I I do think that COP26 is an opportunity for people to come together and, and make those bold commitments to try and tackle that climate and nature emergency. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting the sleeper train up to, to Glasgow tonight and, you know, one of the things we've been asked to do is that kind of regular testing, making sure that we're adhering to, to wearing face coverings and, of course, still adhering to as much social distancing as we can. So, you know, all the indications, are, I've not been to COP26 yet, but certainly all of the, the packs and things that I'm getting through from the organisers would indicate that there was real strong focus on COVID security. Um, and, and that, that's something that, that we as, as Glaswegian politicians are certainly encouraged by. Um, pub bosses and, and uh, venue managers branded the first uh, weekend of, of COVID IDs in Scotland a disaster, a word which has been used widely across the Scottish media. It was chaos. What, what, what do you put behind the, the, the mess that was the, uh, the vaccine passport scheme? I wouldn't say that the vaccine passport scheme has been a mess. Um, I've seen plenty of examples of, you know, being able to use my vaccine passport in a very orderly way. I think there's probably an element of this where, are understandably, you know, COVID passports are, um, you know, controversial for some people. But in reality, we are still living in a, in a pandemic at the moment. And it's, it's you know, really important that the government in Scotland acts responsibly. So I personally have no objections to having my, my COVID uh, passport asked for when I arrive at a, a restaurant or a bar um, and you know, I've certainly seen examples as well of that when I was in Dublin fairly recently um, I would argue they've got much more stringent measures, I mean I think I, I visited the McDonald's and was asked to push a, a vaccine passport so uh, I think that yes, there's no doubt that a vaccine passport is a, a, an inconvenience but it's a relatively small inconvenience when we're trying to tackle a virus that has sadly taken the lives of far too many of our fellow citizens but then is the is the passport actually working? I mean, case counts are going up across the country. Um, there is a call also in Scotland to, to increase the passport so that it covers, um, you know, restaurants, indoor venues, but also cafes and gyms and that the, the pass is used even more widely. Well, a vaccine passport in and of itself will not be the magic bullet to reducing cases of coronavirus. It's part of a wider package. That package also includes people, you know, making sure that they get both their, their jabs or the vaccine, getting the booster jab if required, making sure indeed if they, they do test positive that they, you know, they self-isolate and adhere to the rules. So the vaccine passport is just part of that package of measures that we've got to try and tackle coronavirus. We are entering a, a very difficult time of the year, not least with, you know, flu season. Um, but it is just so, so important that people make sure that they're adhering to all of the regulations around coronavirus um, and, and do our best to try and move away from this, this awful time that we've been through. But the, the vaccine passport in and of itself won't be the silver bullet, but it's part of that wider package.
Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Well, let's take a look at what else is making news in the world of politics today. Parliament is tightening coronavirus rules amid a surge in cases. Tours and banquets are cancelled for two weeks and MPs have been urged to wear masks across the estate, although they are not being forced to. Face coverings are already compulsory, though, for staff, contractors and journalists. Meanwhile, a senior Conservative MP thinks that there should be a vote in Parliament to approve any future school closures. Robert Halfen, the chairman of the Commons Education Committee, says that the shutdowns during the pandemic were a, quote, disaster and a hammer blow for students' education and well-being. The government maintains that Covid-linked closures have been a last resort. Well, one of Britain's top scientists has quit the government's pandemic advisory body, warning that the COVID crisis is a long way from over. Jeremy Farrar is leaving Sage to focus on his work as director of medical charity, The Wellcome Trust. He backs a vaccine plus strategy which calls for more mask wearing, ventilation and continued testing. Meanwhile, let's move on. Britain is hosting the COP26 summit in Glasgow at a time of fraught relations with the EU post-Brexit. The fishing row threatened to overshadow the first few days of the event and Northern Ireland and the trade protocol has not gone away as an issue. Joining us now is Joe Mays from Bloomberg's UK government team. Joe, good to have you on the programme. Um, you were actually at the G20 meeting in Rome, this ahead of COP26. It was meant to sort of tee up the climate commitments didn't seem to do that exactly. What did you take away from the G20, just first of all? Yes, it's clear that the priority of Boris Johnson going into that summit was to build momentum for the COP climate talks. He wanted to get world leaders on side, get some bigger commitments on tackling climate goals, whether that be committing more cash or commitments to plant more trees or commitments to reduce their use of coal, issues that they would take into COP. He wanted to get some nice early commitments to build that momentum. And it was a difficult summit on, on, on that account. Boris Johnson at the end was saying how you know, there's still just so much work to do. And he was quite downbeat about it and frank and saying, as it stands, we're not going to get there if we, if we keep going at this kind of rate of progress. That's why he went into COP somewhat downbeat. But as you mentioned, throughout the summit, there was this other overhanging issue which threatened to deal, derail the focus on the climate, which was the very tense post-Brexit relationship, especially around fishing. And so with quite dramatic moments over the weekend in Rome where Matt Corrin Johnson had this bilateral meeting to address the fish question where it seemed like they'd agreed to diffuse the row and the French side came out saying that was the agreement. But then only 25 minutes later, the British side came up with their briefing saying, 
no, no, uh, our position hasn't changed. It's for the French to de-escalate this row. So suddenly there's this kind of big blow-up where extraordinarily you have two world leaders essentially disagreeing about what was said in the meeting between them, and that kind of kept this, this row going through the weekend. So the Prime Minister was still being asked about it at the very final press conference when he wants to be talking about climate, but instead we were talking about fish. So it was, uh, it was, it was really quite remarkable. Fish, uh, fish, yet again. Obviously, that hasn't uh, hasn't gone away. We've not heard much about it because the world's been focused on much, much bigger problems. But just bring us up to date with with where those discussions are. Probably not much progress has been made. But where 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 will those move in the next uh, couple of weeks? Yes. Yeah, so on the fishing question, there was a key deadline that the French had imposed for Monday night, where France had said you do not give our fishing boats more licenses in line with the Brexit trade deal, we will impose various retaliatory measures. These included things like stopping for, uh, British boats from landing their catches at French ports, being more work to rule around customs and lorries to disrupt trade with Britain, all these, all these measures. But then, Monday night, Macron in Glasgow said, no, we're going to step back from that threat because we think that these talks can now continue. We're seeing some signs of progress about getting more licenses for our boats. So it was a slight climb down from the French side in that respect. We're now in a crunch couple of days where it will come down to does the Jersey government, do the British government give more licenses to, to French boats? And how do the French react to that decision? We've got a meeting between David Frost and Clement Bone, the France's junior European affairs minister. That's happening on Thursday. So we seem to be heading towards a compromise. A lot of this heat is coming out of the row, but it could still blow up. It could still be the case that France isn't satisfied with the licenses given and goes for those retaliatory measures. So we're not out of the woods yet, but we seem to be heading towards a compromise. What I find extraordinary is I was speaking to a Conservative MP just earlier this week who effectively, not in as many words, but said that about the numbers, um, disputed what the French were saying about the number of licences issued and was sort of implying that the French were lying, which I thought was, um, you know, quite quite interesting. What does Britain get out of this never-ending Brexit row? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those where there is a genuine uh, argument to be had about whether these licenses should be given or not. So you can argue mm. this isn't actually a political thing. It's a genuine legal question of what licenses should be given under the Brexit deal. You have the UK and Jersey saying on one side, the French boats aren't providing enough evidence, enough data. Yeah, that's a very valid viewpoint. The French saying, we don't think we should have to provide that data. It doesn't explicitly re- provide for a evidence threshold in, in, in the trade agreement. And that's a valid viewpoint. That's where, where the dispute's happening on like a legal basis. But no, you are right that it is it is certainly valuable, probably on both sides of this point, to have a simmering row over fish to the UK. And it keeps the EU as an external enemy to which they can be blamed and get all these nice front pages in their, in their supportive conservative media saying that you know, we're standing up to the French. And meanwhile, France has a presidential election coming next year and they want to be shown to be standing up to their fishermen. So you know, there's a bit of on both sides to keep this going. Um, but you know, these things can get out of hand, especially around Northern Ireland, a separate issue, but still Brexit-related. It, it, the consequences could be much more dire in terms of stoking uncertainty, political volatility, even violence in that region. What's the view among the other 26 members of, of the European Union? Is it, is it eye-rolling, oh, France, Britain, Brexit, fish? Is, is there any sympathy with, with, the, with the UK or are they, are they sort of squarely behind France on this or do they not care? So the ministers of other EU countries publicly declare support for France on this issue. They say we, we completely stand by France and they need to uh, protect the livelihoods of the EU fishermen. I think behind the scenes, in terms of what they would actually be willing to support France doing when it comes to 
real retaliation under the trade deal, I think that's where there's somewhat less support and less sympathy because it seems to be the case that France might be perhaps slightly overextending its its case here in terms of its argument because it is the case that many of these French boats don't have the evidence which the UK is asking for. I think EU member states can see that. So okay, it will be a tricky legal case to argue that these boats should be getting those licenses. So we're not so in favour of massive retaliatory action given how it's not such a clear-cut thing that the UK is necessarily in the wrong here. But I think that, that, that that's where it stands. Okay, um, fishing, one has to remember, is a tiny fraction of uh, the economic uh, might of both the UK and also of France, although, you know, France does have a lot of coastline. But Northern Ireland is a much bigger concern, isn't it? And as you mentioned, that the worry around violence and, uh, you know, the, the issue around the Northern Ireland protocol is really still pretty live. And on that, again, it's more negotiations. Yes, we have Lord Frost and the European Commission Vice President Maros Seskovic in constant dialogue and talks at the moment where the UK is proposing a pretty fundamental overhaul of the post-Brexit deal with respect to Northern Ireland, the protocol, and the EU saying, well, no, no, we've got these more moderate you know, uh, concessions and changes we'd like to make, but not the kind of significant overhaul that the UK is asking for. So it's all about will they get some kind of mutually agreeable compromise on the protocol. If they don't, the UK is saying we will simply suspend parts of it unilaterally using the so-called Article 16 mechanism. And if they do that, we're then into a kind of whole new world where the EU can take retaliatory measures and it could really get quite messy quite fast. And um, the mood music and the fear is that we that that is the state we will get to after the COP summit. There's a sense that the UK wouldn't necessarily want to pull the trigger during the climate talks because it would create bad will with the EU and perhaps you know make it less likely they make progress at COP. But once COP's done, there's a sense that you know maybe that is a time where we get into this conflict. What are some of the other live issues in in Brussels at the moment? Um, the, the 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 row with Poland, I believe, is uh, has been of much uh, greater import to to many EU members th- than Brexit of late. Where, where are we at with that? Yes, the Poland rule of law case has been uh, has been a bigger one, and we've seen you know lots of talk, kind of anti-Polish rhetoric coming out from from many of the EU side trying to you know, curb the direction that country is taking and trying to bring them back into line or, or, you know, with, with the path that you would like them to take. So, yeah, that has been a big worry. And people have been mm. arguing that Brexit is you know, much lower down the list for, for EU leaders. I think that's probably now changing. Yeah. You know, we're, we're getting to a moment where uh, I think Brexit might come back above Poland as an issue for the, for the EU. OK. Look, just lastly, a thought on COP26. Is there a dividend here for Brexit Britain or, or how does one quantify that? Indeed, one for Boris Johnson, of course. I mean, you know, uh, the UK has really tried to roll out the red carpet here for um, you know more than 100 world leaders and close to 200 nations. Uh, these pictures are being beamed around the world. Yes. And I guess what it comes down to is, does the UK secure significant concessions from the major political countries like China, India, the United States of America, and make big progress on the issues that really matter. We think about coal is probably the most important one that it looks like we won't necessarily make progress there. But we have seen progress on deforestation this week. We've seen um, progress on climate finance as well. So there have been some areas, but it looks unlikely that Boris Johnson will be able to spin this as a, as a massive success, but perhaps you know, moderate moderate progress. In terms of can that be claimed as a Brexit dividend, hard to say, hard to say. I think it's not clear why they would be able to do that when it was the European Union. So, um, yes, it's a tricky one. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.